This is the Power of Genetics podcast. In each episode, I'll be interviewing successful practitioners and impactful thought leaders in the world of health and performance. They will share their journey, their insights, and their best advice for us all. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe. Let's begin with today's episode. Welcome everyone to the Power of Genetics podcast. Today is the very, very first time that I have not one, but two guests who have joined me, two very, very special guests that I've known for a very long time and been lucky enough to work with, Dr. Leslie Stone and her very, very brilliant daughter, Emily Redbaum. I'm going to be referring to them as Emily and Leslie from now on, Um, but really quite an extraordinary story. And I have been um, listening and learning from Leslie for, it feels like forever, in the world um, of of functional medicine. And I'm gonna ask Steve Leslie in a while to tell you about the work that she has been doing. And then more recently was introduced to Emily, who is just a force of nature. And you'll come to understand um, what I mean by that. So I was really just so honored that they agreed to both join me on the podcast and to share their story. Because if ever there was a story of change and challenging a paradigm of how we do things and really trying to offer care to a full spectrum of individuals and just not one um, kind of layer of, of, of individuals. This is, this is the story. So a big welcome to Leslie and Emily. Thank you. Thank you. So who's going to go first? Should we start with Leslie, I think, right? That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maternal wisdom and such things. Maternal <laughs> wisdom. We're going to go with I love that. So Leslie, I have been... You know, let's start with, like, if you can tell us a little bit about who you are now, I always say, like, tell us what you are now, what you're doing now. And then if you don't mind, let's go back to the early days. Like, why did you become a doctor? Why did you choose to go into obstetrics? And and then we'll we'll kind of catch up and then we'll introduce Emily and then we'll talk a whole lot, I hope, about the amazing work that the two of you are doing today. That sounds like a great format. So um, instead of, yeah, so we'll start at the end and it's not so much an end as it's a transition for me at this point to go from a full 24 seven clinic experience doing full spectrum cradle to grave medicine, you know, babies all the way through to, you know, some of my favorite patients are up there at the 100 and 101 range, but there in the middle is that reproductive um, piece of it that keeps us very, very busy. And now instead of being that involved in all the spectrum, I am now just working in a hospital-based setting where I am doing on-call for the high-risk obstetrics practice that is there. It's very satisfying, a wonderful way to um, be able to meet that need of being around the wonderful gift of life. There's just nothing like it. And and if, I don't know if it's if it's true, Lizzie, but I read somewhere that you've delivered over five thousand babies. Is and that quit true? Counting years ago, quit mm-hmm. counting years ago. So there you go. You know, it's just a, a wonderful. So my first. So then we'll back up into. Well, yeah. I'll segue one piece of it. I'll back up to 1982 when I delivered my first baby. Okay, so it's been a while ago, right? Graduated from medical school in '84. But what drove me to the medicine piece of it is, is my own family's background, I would say. I come from a pretty dysfunctional family with lots of mental illness. And yet here I am sitting here with lots of capability and resilience. And it's like, what the heck? Where did that come from? And why am I not my sisters? 
Why am I not the one who is struggling, is being bullied on the playground? And why am I not the one who's having, you know, psychotic breaks in the middle of their 11 and 12 year old selves? Why am I not the one? What can I do? We were raised in the same place. What happened? There's got to be an answer. And so drives you right into looking for an answer, always. And so you get into medicine and you find that there's the depth and breadth at which you learn these systems is fabulous. But then we have to cohese it down into a knowledgeable piece of kind of a, a brick-shaped piece of information that we can apply to many people. And I found that very quickly in my striving to be an excellent physician and, and improve people's health from the beginning that I couldn't seem to make, I could get what everybody else got, but I was like, you know, how can, how can I keep our pregnant mothers, for example, from having trouble with their high blood pressure, from bleeding too much, from those babies, from dying, being born to preterm birth? You know, what? how how, how come I can't get better at what I'm doing? There is no, there's no heuristic that's letting me move beyond what was, you know, given in training until we move into a systems-based way of thinking, that functional medicine way of thinking that says that the push and pull between all these systems is really what is going to give you an answer. And then the ability to interrogate that with individuation. You know, to be able to individuate, like, what are your electrolytes looking like? What, I, what is your, being able to image all these different um, areas of your body? What are the metabolomics behind, um, behind, uh, the, behind your processes? What are the genomics that might be driving the metabolomics? What about that microbiome? What about the energetics? What, what about getting into what happens to, how do these all work, the mitochondrial energetic piece that's that's driving our being how do we how do we take that piece by piece and then build it and interrogate it individuate it and bring it back up and if we do such a thing do we get a better process do we get a better answer well the answer is a big resounding yes yes so if we take um, the wonderful combination of somebody thinking in this system's 360 degree view and then we also put in the technology that lets us interrogate our DNA, know our gene code, know every bit of proteomics, every bit of microbiomics. Then how do we, then can we put that into something that's gonna make a difference in our, not just our well-being, but maybe the well-being of the next generation, maybe the well-being of the globe. And so at the same time, now we're watching the, our inability to be able to um, make improvements in hypertension and diabetes and pregnancy-induced, you know, pregnancy-induced problems. But, but why is that? We've got this great medicine piece, and it's because we're not applying it in this way. We're not applying it in this thought process. We're letting, we're letting, we're not looking at the um, issues around the globe, um, such as the, the way we feed ourselves, the, in, the, uh, the uh, inability to, the way we've exported our um, way of eating, the you know, terrible um, habits of, of our developed nations, the way we eat you know, terribly, then we can, how, can we, how can we stop that piece and bring together the, um, our health? So, so, the, so going back, I'm, I'm kind of stumbling along here a little bit, but so, th 
putting together the functional medicine piece into the preconception time period and the pregnancy itself, we found that even that didn't seem to make a difference in our outcomes. And it wasn't until we realized through a, a gentleman named David Barker that it's our application of these processes in the preconception time period and during pregnancy that we actually have the capability of not just, you know, we worry that all the bad things we do will end up creating an increased risk for chronic disease, but the reverse is what's the most important piece to take from that. Mm -hmm. And that is if we take our nutrition and we take our lifestyles and we take all the information we've gathered through these different omics that we study, then we can apply those in a very direct fashion, a very personalized and precise fashion, and end up being able to change whether somebody has terrible outcomes during, regardless of what their preconception story is, we can take all those- They can change their story. Yeah. We can change their story. And so- but Let me ask you, Leslie. So, so, I mean- Yes to everything you said, but what was, so you, you went to medical school and obviously you were in a very kind of allopathic traditional medicine That's and right. everything you've been saying in the last couple of minutes is all kind of the functional way of that we do things, systems biology approach, you know, gathering all the data. What was your pivot? What was your hook that, that pivoted you out of a kind of more traditional way of seeing patients into this other way of doing it? Was it a conference you went to, a person that you met? What was the turning point for you? For me, it was it was literally being able to see these wonderful people in my clinic and not being able to really change their outcomes. Yeah. That was it. It was. So, how did you go out and find answers? Where did you go to look for answers? So, the other mentorships that are in this is that Michael Stone, my spouse, is very much you know an integrative thinker. Starts with a nutrition background and has connections, discovers connection with David Jones, and then through him, through um, Bland as well, Jeff Bland. And so we're at the first, well, 1999, we're not at the very first, but very early into this. Pretty early, yeah. Yes, exactly. And I will say that having come from an allopathic background, um, I was not initially impressed with the strength and rigor of the data that was behind this system's way of thinking. And it took me almost a decade to decide That's that amazing. I thought that there was enough information. And truly it was the advent, and it was when we started being able to get the gene code actually worked out and then being able to interrogate it with some transcriptomics to see how fast you could make changes that, and how many systems inter, interplayed and then the recognition of gene variants. And you could see that, oh, there is a whole lot of nutritional and lifestyle pieces that can manipulate too and some data behind it in a prospective I love that I love that you said you weren't impressed I, I think everyone who's been in this podcast is like and I heard Jeff speak and I went to a functional conference and the lights came out and <laughs> everything was wonderful and I never looked back and you're like what that convincing and I needed a couple of years and it took me I love that I, I love that about you I mean I think that that in itself is a beautiful lesson well, I have to admit, Yale, that it, it lent itself to some pretty interesting dinner conversations because there was a lot of pushing and pulling. <laughs> and Michael, too. So over the course of this decade that yes. my mother was sitting here accumulating enough data to convince herself, like they were pulling their hair out. And she's like, I'm, st I, it's still I'm just staying out of it. I'm going to go eat in, in, the, in, the, in the lounge and watch some TV. Call me when dinner's done. <laughs> 
Like I can imagine, and and we have introduced Michael. Uh, we have we have uh, interviewed Michael on on the podcast before. We had a wonderful conversation with him. But I can just imagine because you know everyone who discovered functional medicine thought like this is it. You know, you like we've discovered it, and everything is wonderful. And you're like, first one's like, well, I think I'm going to spend a decade getting data. To be, I, I love that. I absolutely love that. I love that. Right. So what I'm more interested in is the dinner conversation that happened when Emily turned around and said, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm actually going to be a nutritionist. So maybe let's, let's shift over to Emily and talk. Cause like, cause right. This is so interesting. There's a whole lot of like parents um, um, and children kind of relationships that are happening in our world of medicine and nutrition that are so interesting and how um, like Austin um, that are that are taking quite unique directions for themselves and, and carving out very, very much their own space in the world of nutrition and medicine. So Emily, I'd love to hear your story. Sure. So I think wow, mine really lends itself to maybe oversimplification initially, but I have to just admit, I just, I really, and this is actually a testament to my parents, particularly my mother. Um, when I was very, very young, she would put horrible vegetables on my plate that I didn't like, right? And, um, you know, and actually it was actually mostly tomatoes that I remember. And I remember complaining every time and she looked at me and she just said, Emily, it's going to stay on the plate just because it's beautiful. And it totally shifted my um, approach to food, recognizing that it's not just fuel, it's also an entire experience and it's a connection and it's integration and it's uh, synergistic. And it made me realize um, how much I actually really do love food. So my nutrition background is a pretty simple one. I wanted to be a nutritionist because I love food. And I also recognized very early in um, observing my parents' career that they were actually limited by standards in many ways. They were limited by really scrupulous, appropriately scrupulous guidelines, Social right? practice, yeah. Life-saving practice guidelines, methodology. I protocols. I, and I honor that. I, um, I, I didn't like that rigidity in many ways. And I think nutrition lends itself to creativity. It lends itself to connection. It lends itself to, um, time. The one thing that I have love about being a nutritionist is I get to spend far and above more time with my clients than, than, Leslie and Michael do, and any of my colleagues really do, even in the mid-level, you know, the NPPA space as well. And so what I realized was in order to truly, I believe, to extend the care, this excellent already standard of care into the functional medicine space and really be able to integrate both sides of that aisle, because I don't think it's meant to negate the other. I think that they should live synonymously in the same space. But that the way to do that was that you needed an anchor in the middle. And that person, I think for me, was in this case, a nutritionist. And, and, that, um, and that's why I pursued that world of, you know, in my board certification as a holistic nutritionist, that's why I felt like it was such a powerful space is because I could advocate for the side of the standard medicine that was going to save a life and then improve upon the preventative optimization component of the functional space for the function of that person and then help them coach them through that process all the while allowing the md or the np or whomever i worked with to really feel like they were able to extend their care and have a team approach to one person and i think um that's that's what was so interesting and attractive to me was to be able to bridge 
the, the, the space between an obvious deep desire for an MD, a family practice MD to do the most that they could, but were really limited by the construct of reimbursement and time and clinical space. So it was to be that, that extender. And um, I inherently love being able to look at a problem that has existed and try to find a different solution. It's like very exciting to me. So that creative part of Leslie's very real outcomes, which is she was applying standard of care and getting the same results. And, you know, you could define that as insanity. I'm sure someone has. We have that way. <laughs> so, yeah. So, definitely. Um, and she challenged me actually very early on in my nutrition career. I think it was before I was even in my interning hours. She challenged, she goes, um, so I'm having these problems. Will you just make a program and it'll be nutrition and nutrients? I think these are the ones that we need. And, you know, this is kudos to her for her bravery for pointing out really early that we probably need quite a bit more B12 and quite a bit more choline and quite a bit more D and quite a bit more carnitine before the world for being a naysayer for a decade, she was a pretty early adopter once she was able to make the physiological connection um, to these nutrients that were so redundant and crucial. And so she tasked me with basically creating a new way of integrating prenatal care into an allopathic standard global insurance coverage system. Um, and it, it, created grow baby health, which is what, what we have. We, well, we're going to talk about grow baby, but I feel like Leslie has something to say. And that is, I wanted to say that the basis, we, one of the bases of functional medicine, like what is the language of functional medicine? How does your body talk and interface? And I think the main language, one of the main languages is food. Mm -hmm. It's food. And so that Everyone does get eats. down. It does, Everyone but it, it, it gets down to its most reduced state. It gets down to electrons and protons and, you know, it pushes and pulls. And, and so it is, I guess the ultimate language is energetics, but it's our biggest portal is through this nutritional piece. And Emily is incredibly good at language. I did try very hard. So one of the advantages of being a naysayer, of a, a skeptic is it makes you look really hard. Yes. Very, very thoroughly. And so that was some of these discoveries that well, these individual nutrients that looked very powerful. But then the next question is, is how do we integrate the whole darn thing? And because it also appears that single nutrients, single interventions in general do not do it. We tried that for years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like single genes. They also don't do it. Single genes and single interventions. <laughs> Yeah, it's not taking advantage of the elegance and the intricacies of such an amazing physiology. Yeah. So I got a question for Emily. So you arrive. So I'm I'm interested. In, I have two questions really. The one is when you arrived to study nutrition, did you know more than your lecturers already by the time you arrived, having been brought up in the Stone household? <laughs> you know, honestly, now I, Emily, honestly, I think. It reminds me of having multiple languages spoken to you really early in your life. Like even if you aren't totally proficient at understanding them, you, you can recognize them enough to be able to um, start integrating quicker maybe than your peers or colleagues. And I think that that describes my experience with my training is that it's not necessarily that I feel like I knew more. I just recognized it was far more familiar. It wasn't, I didn't have to convince myself this is how I should be thinking or that I was missing something. Um, 
but I, but I, I, I can't help but know that just simply because I've grown up in this family, I have, I have had a distinct advantage. I would think so. I was those, those beautiful tomatoes on the plate. You were way ahead of the game. I know, yeah. you know, and so I, you know, and I also, I also, and this is hopefully not going to shed a negative light on my parents, but their, their expectation for, for, uh, academics was actually extraordinarily high <laughs> so, I'm so, so shocked I'm, I'm I'm so shocked that you say that really so so um but they also wanted you to try they, they it, the expectation couldn't ever um paralyze the effort right and so so it was the constant it was the constant like what can you improve on what else could you do how else could you think about it you know what what else is missing could you make it shorter could it be more succinct could you clarify that you know it's just there it was this constant um not challenge I'll I have to admit growing up it wasn't always met with kindness as a response from me but now being able to reflect that's fair I'm not sure I would have been terribly kind either I mean now (laughs) now I would look back and go oh I was so lucky to have parents like that that yeah so but I I think that sounds a bit exhausting if you ask me so Leslie what's your take on that come on I think that that's exactly it's that heuristic again that comes back to Emily um is willing to think complexly and is not afraid of it. Mm-hmm. And many people are. They would rather reduce it. Absolutely. And, and, and miss something. Yeah. Miss something important. Yeah. So that I think that that's a segue into another question I have for you, Emily. So many people I talk to, and of course myself, we we chose the nutrition route of becoming a dietitian. And you did not. No. I would love to, because I have I talk about dietetics a lot. And, and the challenges and limitations of the profession. Um, and you obviously made a very intentional and conscious decision of the nutrition journey that you took. Can you, I, w- I would love to, to understand your thinking on that. Yeah, it's a super great question. I actually think about this question almost every day, ironically, even though I'm 13 years into being a holistic nutritionist. Um, I truly felt like at the time when I was going into the choice of schooling, and this was in, I had you know, made decisions in 2009, 2010. Um, the programs for dietetics, in my opinion, were too thought limiting. They were not expansive enough. There was not enough integration of functional thought. And I had spent my whole, pretty much my whole life, really my imprinted life, only hearing that you worked in systems and everything integrated in the minute that you started compartmentalizing, specializing into away from systems that, um, you know, I use this quote a lot, you know, dogma is the death of anything good. I, I, I really felt like the dietetic space was too dogmatic. And I was not going to put my fairly expansive thinking brain, one that I know I also would revolt against if, and probably get kicked out of classes if I would, there's challenge too hard. Sounds like me. Yeah, I just really, (laughs) you know, so I found a program that actually two of their main textbooks were functional medicine books, course books. That says it all. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I completed, I would have chosen your way if it was if there was opportunity, I'm quite a lot older than you and I didn't have choices. So I landed up in um, dietetics, which as you say, is all about 
dogma and reductionism you know it's um and it still is it still is no. so we haven't so I love the journey that you've taken I had a good look at your choices and was you know was like I would have been a very different nutritionist if I'd got that education and not had to go the dietetics route and then try unlearn and relearn uh, everything that came after that yeah and but now two sides right it is very difficult to convince on a piece of paper the allopathic world to listen to me it's very very difficult and it remains difficult and because it's not a standardized way of providing nutrition and exactly. so yeah. I, you know, now I think that there's now a few programs that do that really beautifully. And I, you know, I, I will not lie to you. I have looked at those programs and I'll just do this again. So I can just make it easier off of a piece of paper. Right. Um, you know, my brother, Lucas, who's a, he's in, you know, residency right now, you know, he's, he'll be another Dr. Stone. You know, he goes, Emily, the problem has never been, you know, you, the problem is getting you through the door. Once you're through the door, like, Absolutely. Yeah. everyone's fine but but off of a piece of paper you're right you know that so there's limitations to the execution of what I can do professionally within a larger broader space but the application of my work over the course of the 13 years obviously granted um, a tremendous gift by by both Dr. Stones my parents is that I was I mean I, I was not Yale I was one week into my holistic nutrition training and they certified me as a lifestyle educator and they're like okay you're seeing cardiometabolic patients so oh, here's wow. the other here's the other <laughs> advantage <laughs> here's the other advantage i was given i learned in real time in yeah. real application so that is so valuable whoa, whoa valuable so yeah. valuable you know but i think also too what i love about nutrition and nutritionist training and holistic nutrition is that we we get to be very comfortable with learning the, 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 you know, phrase of, I don't know, let's find out, let's figure out a different way. Let's continue to be flexible. That plan didn't work. Let's find another one, you know? And I think, um, that is such a grace filled space to be able to provide care and to be able to, to help facilitate healing and improvement in function and in connection. And I think that it's a really intentional gift that I identified early in this space of nutrition. So I just want to uh, make a comment on this because um, I have had many dietitians who've said that the reason they chose dietetics was because um, to get in the door and be heard and get insurance, not because they knew that it was the right thing or that they would learn the right kind of nutrition. Um, so I just, you know, I want to just um, on you of that, of, of the, um, the courage that it took to, to follow that path knowing the limitations of it. And we know that one of the greatest challenges in nutrition in the, in, that we have is these organizations that try to own nutrition as the truth. Um, and, and dietetics is only one of them and not the only one who, who makes claim to owning the truth of nutrition. And I think that that's where we failed you know, wholeheartedly. And, and I think that um, very few have had the courage to say, I, I, I will not do that degree simply to get insurance paying for my time. I do think you're, you know, and you noted it, you know, you had the stones, you had the clinic, you had the ability to practice um, in, in, in a kind of secure space. You knew you would have a job, you know, without it, but, but still, but still. 
it took great courage. And I, I, I'm going to make a note of this, that when I have people who come to me and they always ask me, what should I study? They always, you know, coming to me and saying, like, should I do dietetics? And I'm always like, um, that, that there is an alternative. And I would love to find out a little bit more about your courses so that I've, I've got them stored up for when that question happens. Because if we do not create a different kind of nutrition professional in the world, we will never solve the problems of nutrition. And I think that the problem we have is we do need this new kind of nutrition professional, which I think you um, um, epitomize. And so, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. And, and you know, you are quite the unique individual. And I think that's what this podcast is, is being able to introduce everyone to, to, to Leslie, to you, to show that you can challenge the way things have been done. You can forge a different way of doing things and you can create a completely new space where others can come and join you. And so, you know, let's talk about this amazing space that you have built, which is a combination of both of your strengths, um, Grow Baby, and what makes it so beautiful and so unique and, and, and such a challenge into the way things have traditionally been done. Ooh, Leslie, I'll let you start that one. Well, I think I will start with kind of a philosophical discussion. And that is, um, there is a, when people are get rigid and try to put boxes mm -hmm. around things, is they're trying to create safety. They're mm -hmm. trying to do no harm. Mm -hmm. That is very useful in an acute care setting. You know, if somebody's limb is going to fall off, if you don't do it in a certain way, you want them to do it. And it turns into a very prescriptive sort of a thing. But if what you want to do is to manage their diabetes so that their limb doesn't fall off, <laughs> you know, then maybe that's not the same box you want to be working in. It's not the same that we have to take that little tiny, as Michael would say, sandbox, and we have to broaden it out so that we get for the chronic conditions, the, the conditions that the antecedents that lead to this place where we're now in a dire straits where we have to be able to support something in a, in a very crisis management sort of a way, you want somebody who's working in a box who can repeat it and do it exactly the way, right? Just and save that moment. But how about if we back it up to prevent that moment? And that heuristic is better served in the kind of nutritional background that Emily has, that way of thinking. It's less so served by a dietetics background. You know, now if they were on the front lines and they were preventing that limb from falling off, well, okay, put a box around them. Otherwise, no, <laughs> you know, let's think broadly and widely. Mm -hmm. And so, so, for the, so we had a registered dietitian who we asked, we tasked with the same, the same goals with them um, is of creating a nutrition and lifestyle program, trimester by trimester. Once we realized there were so many impactful moments to think about. We used to think about pregnancy as just being, it happens, there's nothing you can do about it, and I got a baby at the end. Hopefully that, that'll all work out just fine, you know? <laughs> but no, when we finally realized, when technology and epidemiology caught up with us and we went, oh, you mean three months ahead of time? And you mean the three months, the first three, and then the next three, and the next three, they are fundamentally different and you need to be able to manipulate this. We needed a great complex thinker who could integrate all these nutrition and lifestyle modalities, you know, diet, supplement, you know, and, and, and then we had to be able to interrogate it carefully to be able to sure and then be able to take all this great synthesis and make it down into something doable because the key crux to anything that we create is empowerment, 
It has to be doable. We can never ask anybody to do anything that they fail at, you know, or they feel like they failed at. So the important, the most important man, uh, message that we send to anybody is that they can do it, that they are in charge, that every moment that they take a breath, they have a, they are in control of themselves and they get to, with these new tools that we have, codified by Emily, <laughs> you know, that they have a doable task in front of them that will give them, that will reverse, literally reverse the circumstances that might've brought them to that, to this place. Mm -hmm. So very empowering message, very important to place it that way. And so I think also we, from my understanding of, of the Grow Baby program, you not only kind of put a structure together to guide and, and educate and inform and handhold, but you've also been able to bring it out to a greater population, not just our typical functional medicine, affluent, privileged individual. Can you talk a little bit to that? Because I think it's really important um, yeah. that, we, that we talk about that. So we could, yes, exactly. So um, we were able in our clinic, um, our background comes from that where um, the idea that people are, they, they are born with a certain opportunity and they die with a certain opportunity is just not okay. It's just not okay. And so um, we, our practice has always been where we took people who could do cash, people who couldn't do cash, people who were in, in the, the, the poorest of our poor, you know, the Medicaid population. So when, everybody was welcome at this clinic. And, and we were all, we were going to stop thinking about them just because, in, in a functional way, just because they had this particular insurance or they didn't have insurance. And so that gave us a wonderful crucible for refining these sorts of concepts with those persons who could, who had the, um, money to go out and think functionally versus those who did not. We were very, you know, we, we we're good gamers. We figured out how to get the system to pay for it, you know, is basically what we did. And sure enough, these, these, these really simple core redundant truths about how your body functions that needed to be put into a, um, a format that could be undone, could be repeated and doable for each of these patients, tailored to each of these patients using some key nutrients, some key lifestyle information, lots of great information about antecedents to be able to anticipate what their weaknesses might be, their vulnerabilities and their strengths might be that we could tap into. Using some gene variants, our next goal has been to get, and so we ended up with a very positive experience with a mostly 50% Medicaid. And we found that we really did have a significant reduction in these outcomes that we now predict, know, now know, predict an increased risk of heart disease across every system. Increased risk yeah, all the statistics on your website. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, you were able to quantify your success. One of the great challenges of the work we do is being able to quantify outcomes to show that the interventions have been successful. So I was super impressed to see those great statistics. So, um, you know, this is the Power of Genetics podcast. So this seems a very good time just to have a have a question in there what's been the value of of using genetics in the work that you've been doing yeah well as i told leslie today dna was discovered in 1950 so really technically it's like 83 years old and then the human genome project is like 20 years old yeah. 
So, I mean, I think it started, it's that mapping stopped in 2003, if I'm 2003 correct. was the draft, yeah, the draft version. And then, um, you know, Dr. Jurgo, Dr. Skinner came out with this, you know, methylation epigenetic conversation, like 2007, 2009. So I think more than anything, what is really exciting to us about this conversation about genetics is that in this, I mean, I laughed with Leslie today. I say, we know people who are older than, you know, who are older than DNA. <laughs> so to speak. So like we get to have a little grace with ourselves as we have these really aha moments of discovery and not feel like we have to know everything all the time and be willing to adjust yeah, work with what you know and be willing to adjust based on, as you're describing the synergy of our genes and understand that yes, they're heritable. Yes. Epi our epigenome is heritable, you know, so that's an exciting thing, but it's also highly manipulable. Right. And quickly. That was the other, the other big discovery. And quickly. Absolutely. Hours. Yeah. Because it's like, okay, let's do that. Yeah. So, so <laughs> which, so we, we have, we have been able in this process to identify what we believe based on and standing on the, the excellent work and minds of many people who are brilliant and have come before us, but including you. Including you. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. It's very true. Um, who we've discovered that there seem to be some patterns to health and patterns to life that can improve resilience over time. And we can absolutely modify them within this preconception perinatal time period. And the, the greater hypothesis, which I know you will think is going to be very exciting, is although these epigenetic <clears throat> marks are heritable, if we intervene early enough on the germlines, or during the development of the gestation, the fetus within gestation, can we change our epigenetic, their epigenetic mm. function that is then dissimilar from their parents? That's the question. And I think when we were, had the um, opportunity at PLMI to talk to Dr. Jurdle about this and Dr. Skinner, they both went, please, please let us know if that's possible. Because <laughs> yeah. that hypothesis is, is that it's it might there. be. Yeah. It might be that depending on if we can improve one carbon metabolism function, we can offer these methyl adaptogens, we can offer these methyl cofactors, we can give a good base of protein, we can really target and emphasize during these key preconception and then trimester by trimester dynamic you know, changes that I, you know, the, the hypothesis is that we might be able to, to, to yield not only- yeah. I mean, I don't see why not. It works, should work both directions. That if you have yeah. bad decision making, that you're going to have an epigenetic outcome on, that you're going to inherit. And if you have good decision making, you're going to have an epigenetic outcome that is positive. I mean, I don't see, I think it works both ways. I mean, I, I see that's absolutely possible. So, you know, the idea that what, what I found really interesting, and I'm sure you do as well, is this, um, that, you know, because ideally with our kind of epigenome, we kind of clean the slate, but some markers stay and get inherited, not all of them, but some. And the ones that have become very interesting to me, obviously, is this transgenerational trauma um, get passed down. So I'm very interested to hear with, never mind common methylation, whether it's those markers, those tags can be altered during gestation. That would be a really interesting conversation because I think we're starting... That is a very, for me, one of the more exciting areas that are coming out to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. No, I, yeah, that it's, you know, it's not just, uh, it not, 
not just kind of biophysical health. Correct. It's not just pure biology, but it has this kind of element of psychobiology, I guess. I don't know, I'm making it up as I'm going along. No, yeah. no, but it's like the psychosomatic resiliency. Yeah. And it's all about resilience. So the reason yes. I'm here is I, I did a talk on um, um, the genetics of resilience. And um, a lot of it was around, you know, mental health resilience. And um, a lot of it is epigenetic trauma. Um, as well as gene variants. And when you put the two together, so I love the idea that, that you know, and, and the funny thing is, you know, my kids are a bit old, well, not as old as most my age, but um, I had my children later in life and I didn't know your work. And in fact, I didn't even know my work at the time. So it was very early in my career and I just didn't really know enough. And so I always look back, especially when I see Grow Baby and I think, I wish I had known what I know now. Um, for the pregnancies that I had then, like I would have done them very differently, but I guess that's, you know, that's all good. That's, that's the, well, that's the part of the, the, hopefully the, what I want to thread through all of this is that there's still grace in here, right? Is that we do our best with what we have at the time, right? And yes, we are going to continue to discover it and to continue to be curious. And, you know, I think, um, I really, uh, you know, when we were, I was, Yale, we were talking to you before we started recording about the total pivot that we've taken on our book and, and moved entirely away from this idea of like protocols with a capital P, even though there's a lot of our brains that really like to have checklists and check marks and make sure I do the, I march through these. And, you know, it's like, they want a guide and I get that, um, mm -hmm. you know, because it, it feels like you can, it feels like you can, it's like a floaty you can hold on to when you're getting tired from swimming. Right. Mm -hmm. just like, Oh my God, I have this. Good analogy for me. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, I was thinking about your swimming. Yeah. So, um, but you know, if we were to live like Alice from Alice in Wonderland and Lewis Carroll's, you know, brilliant story, um, you know, one of my favorite lines that she constantly says in her book, in the book is curiouser and curiouser. And it doesn't ever halt her or stop her or create a sense of paralysis. It's that she has to make decisions, eat me, drink me without really knowing how, how it's going to go. Right. And so if we can maintain that level of willingness to be curious and willingness to meet whatever comes our way with this inherent, I just, we just know we're going to be okay. That resiliency, yes, right. Courage. It's the courage to be resilient, the courage to make the decision. Mm -hmm. Then, I mean, I, I, I think that our bodies deeply desire homeostasis in nature and its nature and and they they will take care of us we just we 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 get to be part of the active process of discovering what what we need individually and personally because that is where, where it's powerful i love that curiouser and curiouser and i, I mean i i feel like i've i've you're, you're younger than i am quite significantly and i feel like you're extremely wise and that the only reason I managed to get where I got was because I've lived longer than you. But it's just amazing what you're saying, you know, that I just, I think for me, it was a lot about, and the journey through genetics of trying to, the first half of my career of trying to be right was exhausting, yeah. you know, and trying to feel that I knew stuff and that I had, uh, you know, I have this, get it on a stage and that I needed to be the smartest person in the room or know more than everyone else. And you actually realize like, if you're going to, that's just not possible to live like that. And so I think, you know, one of my greatest turning points was about 
2014, turning around and going, you know, wow, I think this just hasn't worked out. You know, this just, I don't think we've done a very good job here. And, and um, what, if I, what if I let go of everything that I thought was right about genetics and stepped away and said, well, wh what are the things that I don't think we've done well and then go and try and solutions? Um, and and I, it was a very like, should I, shouldn't I story? But a lot of it was just being able to step away and going, actually, I'm letting go of this idea that I, I have to have the answers for everything. And rather, you know, let, let, let me go and find a journey for genetics rather than a, an answer. So I do really do understand. Um, yeah. oh, do you feel free and light? Isn't it exciting? It's like oh, way more inspirational. I mean, oh, it's been a whole lot better. <laughs> it's been a whole lot better. You know, it's been 3x4. Like if it wasn't for that awakening of understanding I would never be where I am but now now with 3x4 which which is 3x4 is a journey I mean it's not a solution yeah well I, I'm going to quote Leslie again because you know again going back to the maternal wisdom conversation she she uh, often says and I think it's because of her journey and her process and me being able to observe kind of the way that she has learned too and, and what she has gone through is that she said to me probably five years ago or six years ago, um, you know, she said, Emily, I realized we don't have to be right. We have to get it right. Yeah. That that's very different. That means that it's no longer about you and me and what we want. It's about being willing to continue to search and to seek to ensure that we can really meet the needs of everybody and take the current science and the current understanding and the current appetite for it and to say how can we come together and broaden ourselves rather than contract and constrict and feel like we have to be the ones giving that information it's like no the fastest growing you know this yeah the fastest growing segment in medical care right now is health coaches yeah so there's, a, there's a thousands and thousands yeah. of people trying to be experts in the best and nutraceutical companies and genomic companies who are trying to be the it and rather than there's a part of me that wonders, how about let's step backwards and see how we can utilize the courage, the strength, the journeys, the letting go and the process and the stories that everyone has come to this moment. And how can we integrate and, and really uh, broaden the depth of which we can get it right? Mm -hmm. No, there, you know, there really are it's the fear of making a mistake we have to get rid of that there is no such thing yeah. as a mistake you have to ask the question and you get to learn from whatever the answer is the mistake if there was a mistake it's not recognizing that there's an answer there it yeah. might not be yours mm -hmm. but there is one yeah. <laughs> you know so let's go find that mm -hmm. and that's how so like bringing that back to that gene variant idea it's like okay well how can we take the information that we know about these different gene functions and turn it to something that we might be able to individuate for the betterment of this patient mm -hmm. and so we took a look we started looking at the different metabolisms uh, the different um, systems that would be impinging on gene function and went and recognized as you have i'm sure there's a whole lot of redundancy in the nutrients and the energies that have to do with how well they they produce what they're supposed to do, the enzymes they're supposed to produce, or even the function of the enzyme itself, the product itself. And so then we just we just say, okay, which ones are most key? Which ones do we think are most key clinically? And then what are the key drivers? Let's 
let's codify that. And it turns out that they come down to these little kind of clusters of information that you yep. ask the person to do. And then you watch and see what the answer is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then start again. Right. Well, yeah. we've, we've been talking for quite some time. I've let this podcast, because I, first of all, the two of you, so I get more time, but also because it's such a beautiful conversation, but I am going to tie it up now. And I'm going to do that by, by let's, let's asking Leslie first, if the two of you could just leave our listeners with some wisdom about what would you tell them if they're starting out in their profession and they're not quite sure how they're going to have the impact, how they're going to challenge things, how they're going to choose the path ahead of them. What would be your advice to them? Oh, maybe there's, this is going to be, it feels very broad to me, but the first piece I think is to recognize in yourself that if you're asking this question, there is strength in that question right there. So if that answer comes to you as oh, I want to ask this question about blah, then you pick that and go for it. Trust that that is where you need to go and be open-minded. There really is no mistake there. You can go fearlessly into those questioning because you will find an answer. Leave that mind wide open, leave it wide open, bigger, yeah, bigger than your, take it out of the box. Love it. And okay, I'm, Emily, your turn. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I feel like I just stutter interrupted there. Whoa, okay. Um, I think mine comes from a lesson I had to learn, um, which is if you want to be a thought leader, if you want to lead, if you want to be an expert, if you want to really gain true experience and expertise around something, in order to impart all that you know, all of that knowledge, you have to first create a relationship with the person that you were trying to help. So leaders often are limited first and foremost by their inability or their ability to make a connection. And I think inherent to leading, inherent to leadership, inherent to knowing something and being able to really make a difference in whatever space that it is, doesn't have to be nutrition, doesn't have to be, I mean, you pick that first you have to be willing to create a relationship and a connection with something, even if it takes more time and be willing to give it time. Because in that process, I know I told Leslie recently too, time is your ally. We're always racing against it. It's running out, right? It's like, I'm late, I'm late for a very important date, right? Again, the, the, the rabbit. More Alex. Yeah. And, but to lead, to know, to acknowledge your expertise, you have to create relationship and connection. So do that well, and everything else will fall into place. But know first and foremost that humans connection needs humans. We need each other to be able to impart good and to impart resilience. Well, I, I, I can't add anything wiser than that. So I'm going to say a very big thank you to Dr. Leslie Sohn, to Emily Redbum. Thank you so much. That was a beautiful conversation. Um, just so good being able to connect with you both. I love your work. I love, I'm, I'm very excited to see the future um, and see where you both take us. And hopefully I will get to see you soon in person for some some real in-person connection. I know there's always a bit of a chance because at least we live on the right side of the country together. <laughs> a very big thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com backslash podcasts.